The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, everyone. So, uh, welcome once again. Uh, this is the last session for this retreat. Uh, so, we're going to finish off. Uh, uh, do the last couple of little suttas and then maybe summarize a little bit towards the very end. Uh, summary is usually very short. It usually consists of one one word, the summary, so it's going to take be quick. Um, but uh, we'll see what happens when we get there. Yeah. So first of all, finishing off these uh, last couple of suttas uh, and uh, the uh, I can't remember exactly why I <laughs> included these suttas here, but uh, they are here, so we're going to have a look at them. Uh, and the next one here is about how to contemplate the five khandhas, the five aggregates, the five aspects of personality, or whatever however you want to translate it. And it's called the gratification. It's from the Kanda Sangyutta, the 22nd chapter of the Sangyutta Nikaya, the Connected Discourses of the Buddha. And Sutta number 26, that's what it says there, at Samadhi. Uh, so I'll have a quick look at this, and then we'll go on to the uh, very last sutta in a minute. So, at Savati, mendicants, before my awakening, when I was still unawakened but intent on awakening, I thought, what is the gratification to draw back the escape when it comes to form, feeling, perception, choices, and consciousness? Rupa, Vedana, Sanya, Sankara, and Vijnana. Then it occurred to me, the pleasure and happiness that arise from form, uh, that is its gratification. Uh, that form is impermanent, suffering, and perishable, that is its drawback. Uh, removing and giving up desire and greed for form, uh, that is the escape. So, um, I have already spoken quite a bit about how to contemplate the five khandhas. Uh, we talked about that in connection with the Anapanasati Sutta on mindfulness of breathing uh, and how to, when you come to the end of the meditation, you uh, reflect back on what has happened uh, and you see how things kind of disappear and how they pass away. That's how you see the drawback in these things. You see the disappearance and then you see the benefit of the disappearance and you understand that they are impermanent, etc., etc. Uh, uh, but here it's going a bit further. Here it kind of looks at the three things, the three angles on which to view anything. Uh, the asada, the adinava, and the nisarana. Uh, so the asada being that the positive aspect of something, the gratification. Uh, the adinava, the danger or the drawback. Uh, and then the escape, which is the nisarana. Uh, and uh, so one way of doing this, as I mentioned, is through meditation practice. Uh, that is the most powerful way, uh, yeah? seeing how impermanent these things are, understanding their suffering, etc. Uh, and, uh, but you can also do this to some extent during daily life as well, yeah? in ordinary life. And uh, you will notice simple things, and we can, now we can kind of take it back to the very beginning of this retreat, uh, when we're looking at the idea of right view, uh, we were looking at the Arya Pariyasana Sutta, the Noble Search, uh, and uh, the thing that made the Buddha to be here, uh, go forth, uh, yeah, become a monk, and then eventually find the awakening experience. Uh, and those things were things like contemplating old age, uh, 
Yeah, and this is uh, you can so you can. This is really contemplating form, seeing the drawback in form. One day you look and you look at yourself in the mirror and you're really happy. You think, yay, okay, today, today everything is looking nice. The next day, the kind of sign of old age is there. And you think, oh no, this is kind of going downhill. And at that moment, that oh no, that is the drawback right there. That is the kind of the uh, the scary decline kind of coming in, uh, and that is the decline in form. This is what what is meant by form, uh, because it, form means shape. It means the things that we see in the world. Uh. So it's very simple uh, and very easy thing to do in ordinary life. And this is actually a shallow or a, or a, not so shallow, maybe a preliminary form of contemplation of the uh, the five kandas, the first kanda itself. Uh. So you become aware of these things, uh, and then you, uh, as you do that, uh, you start to seek the escape. Uh, so every time you see the downside of form, uh, you see that you have been attaching, clinging, uh, desiring something that is inherently problematic, uh, because the fact that we find it attractive initially uh, means that it is always going to be painful when it's not attractive, because that finding it attractive always involves a degree of attachment and holding on, uh, yeah, whatever that might be. Uh. So whenever you find yourself holding on, uh, and then you see the downside, uh, you see the danger, uh, what happens is that it, um, it, um, it drives you on to the spiritual path. Uh, you, want, you, know, you want to practice in the right way. And this is the beginning of the nisarana, beginning of the escape. Uh, you're already heading in the right direction. Uh, and you can feel, it's kind of fascinating, when you see the downside of things, uh, and you stay with that downside, uh, and you allow, you give your mind enough time to let go, uh, and no longer grasp onto those things, uh, you can feel a sense of uh, release uh, right there. Yeah, The fact that you let go, it feels like you're releasing something, and that feels peaceful. Uh, it feels nice, it feels cool in a sense. Uh, previously you were hot, there were desires, there were attachments, uh, suddenly there's coolness taking over. Uh, and all you're doing is seeing the kind of decline of the rupa right there in the bathroom mirror or whatever it might be. Uh, simple little things, uh, but often kind of powerful. Uh, and very useful to do it towards one's own body, because one's own body is the thing that we often uh, hold on the most to. Uh, you can do it towards other things in the world as well. Uh, anything in the world really, see the decline of things. Uh, but seeing it uh, on your own body is actually very, is very personal. And for that reason, it has a, uh, can be quite effective way of seeing these things. Uh, so you see the uh, drawback. Uh, we already know the asada, the gratification of form. Uh, see the drawback, the decline, and then you can feel the letting go. Uh, and then it also moves you on to the spiritual path. And then that letting go, that escape, builds up over time uh, through the practice of the Noble Eightfold Path. Uh, so simple, yeah, easy. Then come to meditation. This goes much, much deeper. Uh, then you can do it in the deeper way of the body disappearing completely and all of that, uh, seeing the impermanence and suffering, etc., of the body in that way, which is much deeper. But simple things, uh, keeping things simple is so important on this path uh, because that is where it is powerful. And uh, that's where it is, uh, any, anyone can do it, and yet it's powerful. Uh. So that is the, uh, in the case of form, seeing these things. Yeah, Then you have the uh, removing of desire and greed gradually, uh, and the pleasure and happiness that arises from feeling. Yeah. And then the drawbacks of feeling and re removing desire and greed uh, in regard to feeling. Yeah. Yeah, so it's kind of obvious what the, <laughs> what the um, 
pleasure and happiness of feeling is uh, happy feelings are, are is the pleasure and happiness of feeling here yeah, that's kind of pretty obvious and then the when those feelings change uh, and they turn into un, in, un, into suffering or whatever uh, that is a drawback in the case of feelings uh, yeah and uh, this is something you can see in your meditation again you see the feelings changing and feelings moving on we talked about how to contemplate this before uh, but you can also see it in your daily life. You can see how your mind changes. And sometimes you feel a bit sad, maybe, or a bit depressed. Other times you feel, feel you know, high and you feel kind of really happy or whatever. And you can kind of contemplate and see these reversals. And you can see how deluding it is and how often, how permanent it feels to you when you're in those things. Why do people commit suicide when they are depressed? Because they feel there's no way out. And of course, that's just illusion. It is not reality. Things will change. The cause and conditions are already building up underneath. And suddenly the change comes. Or the opposite delusion, where you are really happy. And you, it feels like, yeah, now I've discovered happiness. You haven't discovered happiness at all. Yeah, it's kind of an illusion that now you, <laughs> this is permanent again. Of course it isn't. And before you know it, something goes wrong. And then you feel a bit more sad or, or whatever it is. So you start to understand this changeability of things. None of these things are uh, under your control, even though sometimes that's exactly what we think. And so you, uh, you kind of go through life with a bit more distance. Uh, you're a bit more separate, a bit more aloof. And maybe aloof is not such a nice word, uh, but uh, you're a bit more uh, detached from things. Uh, you stand back a bit more uh, and you see the seasons of life, the happiness of life, the suffering of, of life. You see the ups and downs. Uh, you don't take it so seriously anymore because you understand how uncertain it is. Uh, and then we don't get dragged around by these things because we stand back more. Uh, we see that these things are driven by all kinds of cause and conditions over which we often we have very little control over these cause and conditions. Uh, Yes, in the present moment we can add some good cause and conditions, uh, but overall there's all these things working on us, uh, much larger than us, uh, and we just have to stand back and watch the show, as they say, and see things moving around in this way. Uh, and then you have more equanimity in your life, you have more upeka, because you don't buy into these things so much. Uh, and that's already very beautiful, and that's already conducive to a kind of happiness. When you look at the world from this bird's eye perspective, standing back a little bit, uh, so again, there is the contemplation of feelings within meditation practice that we discussed yesterday. And then there's more the kind of overall view yeah, of things that you can also do during daily life, which actually is quite useful. Then we have the idea of perception. Yeah, perceptions changing. Again, you can see this in meditation. We can also notice this in daily life how your ideas of the world, of other people, is always changing. How some people may seem like your enemies, and then they become your friends. How people you thought were bad turn out to be good. How, you know, and these, our perceptions of other people are some of the most important things that's worthwhile looking at. And so you start to realize that, you know, the gratification is seeing someone as your friend, and the kind of the drawback is when it turns into an enemy or whatever. And you see how uncertain all of these things are. What is the reality here? And of course there is no reality here. There is just perception here. These perceptions changing around. And as you see that again, you withdraw a little bit from all of those things. You don't take them so seriously here. You realize people are all of those things and none of those things. We are none of those things because there is no inherent truth. And we are all of those things because potentially here we will get, we will experience those qualities at some point. 
And this is kind of the weird thing about life, being everything at the same time, but also none of those things. Yeah? This is kind of what, what life is about, this eternal movement, change, always moving from one thing to something else. Uh, nothing inherent, nothing stable. Uh, and then you look back, yeah, or you look, take the bird's eye view, and you think, okay, let me not hold on too much to any of this, uh, because none of this is really, uh, you can't really hold on to it. Uh, and then you go, move towards compassion instead. Uh, then you have the idea of the sankharas. These are the choice called here. The choices can also be called intentions, uh, can be called uh, willed activities, if you like. Uh, yeah, and our choices also are always varying, uh, always uncertain, always depending on causes and conditions. Uh, why have you chosen to be a Buddhist uh, in this life? Uh, some of you were born as Buddhist and you carried on being Buddhist. So well done for not kind of leaving your ancestral religion. <laughs> So some of you, others have been have become Buddhist, uh, yeah, during our life. Uh, uh, but it's not given that we should choose uh, Buddhism or Dhamma or anything like that. Uh, these things depend on again on very deep cause and conditions. What we choose, uh, one life you choose to be a Christian, an atheist, an agnostic, uh, whatever it is. Uh, yeah, we choose all kind of things, and we choose it. We don't really choose it even because the choices themselves are so deeply conditioned. Uh, one of these interesting things about freedom. What does freedom really mean? And sometimes we talk about freedom of choice uh, in the kind of uh, in our societies. But uh, is choice really free? And the answer, of course, is basically no. So we cannot choose our choices. Uh, which choices come about because of cause and conditions? Uh, freedom of choice in Buddhism means something completely different. Freedom of choice in Buddhism means. Uh, um, means eliminating those things that limit our choices. Our choices are limited by our delusion, by our desires, by our ill will. That is the problem. And if you want to free your choice, you have to remove those limiting factors that limit your ability to choose better, to choose more happiness. Most of the time we can't choose happiness because we don't know where to look for it. Most of the time you can't choose happiness because you haven't developed your mind enough in that direction to be able to make those choices. Uh, that is the real limiting factor on choice. Uh, but when you know that there are things like jhana states, that there is a liberation from this round, well then you can choose things that lead you at least in that direction. Uh, if you don't know of their existence, you can't even choose those things. Uh, so what's the point of freedom of a choice if you don't know what to choose? Uh? So uh, choice is inherently uncertain as well, always moving around. Uh, yeah? So uh, at the end of the day, you realize actually freedom from choice actually is the best thing of all. Freedom from choice rather than freedom of choice. Uh, and of course, that is what you find in deep meditation. There isn't much to choose at the end of the day because choice itself is a problem. Uh, and then lastly, we have vinyana, the consciousness, uh, yeah, the uh, kind of the... the um, Happiness, the gratification, the drawbacks, uh, and the escape from consciousness itself. And that is just uh, understanding that uh, part of this is that with consciousness comes all the other things. Uh, consciousness cannot stand on its own. So all these other problems arise with consciousness. Uh, and uh, ultimately, the final kind of drawback of consciousness is just the fact that you have to exist. You have to experience. Uh, and experience, as we mentioned before, is inferior to non-experience, uh, which is weird, uh, but down the track you might be able to see what is going on. Uh. <laughs> so uh, 
this is uh, the idea of these things, and uh, and this is uh, and again, it may sound very Buddhism. Sometimes sounds really, oh, I'm not sure about this, but remember that there is a flip side to all of these things, uh, and the flip side is that as you contemplate these things in this way, as you develop this Buddhist path, uh, you will experience more happiness than you have ever experienced in your entire life. Uh, Every little step on this path is a step towards happiness, step towards contentment, step towards freedom and liberation, step towards reduction in suffering. So from our point of view, actually the path is a really, really happy one. This is the weird thing. It is really from just from a higher point of view that all of these things appear you know, unsatisfactory and suffering or whatever. From our personal point of view, it appears like this amazing path. And this is where the idea of dependent liberation comes in. So as you contemplate these drawbacks and these problems with these things, as you release your grip and attachment to these five khandhas, uh, and you start to meditate in accordance uh, uh, and get deeper meditation as a consequence, uh, and these things start to work, and your kindness starts to work through you, you start to feel good about yourself and all of these things, uh, the joy and happiness that you will experience will just gradually, gradually go up. Uh, and that is kind of the flip side of this path. Uh, and that is where we have to be very careful to get that balance right uh, so we don't kind of uh, become depressed Buddhists, uh, but we become happy Buddhists instead. Uh. So please don't be a depressed Buddhist, uh, be a happy Buddhist. Uh. That, is, that is the purpose of this path. Uh. So, um. Then the Buddha says, as long as I didn't truly understand these five grasping aggregates of gratification, drawback and escape in this way for what they are, I didn't announce my supreme perfect awakening in this world with its gods, Maras and Brahmas, this population with its ascetics and Brahmins, its gods and humans. But when I did truly understand these five aggregates, gratification, drawback and escape in this way for what they are, I announced my supreme perfect awakening in this world with its gods, Maras, Brahmas, this population with its ascetics and Brahmins, its gods and humans. My knowledge and vision arose in me. My freedom is unshakable. This is my last rebirth. Now there will be no more future lives. So we have seen this last part quite a few times now. Uh, the Buddha achieving the final awakening. And this is uh, when he claims to be a Buddha. The real deal, as they say. Uh, <laughs> so now we come to the very last sutta of this retreat. Uh, I hope you're not feeling too sad. Are you feeling sad, last sutta? Uh, <laughs> so it, remember that there is the Buddha has what he calls the... Uh, uh, niramisa dukkha, yeah, or niramisa domanasa, the spiritual sadness, uh, right? Uh, and uh, sometimes a bit of spiritual sadness, it kind of urges you on the path, so it may not be a bad thing. Anyway, we come to the city. Nagara is this, uh, the name of this uh, sutta, and this is found in the Nidana Sangyutta. We're still in the Sangyutta Nikaya, the 12th chapter, sutta number 65. And um, here we go. So this is all about dependent originations. This gives us a chance to very briefly review dependent origination as well. So let's see what happens. At Savati, mendicants, before my awakening, when I was still unawakened but intent on awakening, I thought 
Alas, this world has fallen into trouble. It is born, grows old, dies, passes away, and is reborn. Yet it doesn't understand how to escape from this suffering, from old age and death. Oh, when will an escape be found from this suffering, from old age and death? Then it occurred to me, when what exists is there old age and death? What is the condition for old age and death? Then through proper attention I comprehended with wisdom. When rebirth exists, there is old age and death. Rebirth is the condition for old age and death. I would suggest uh, deleting the A and replacing it with the, because really this is the, the condition that matters and the one that is the, uh, the, the thing that we're trying to get rid of. Uh, a, in my opinion here, is a little bit misleading. I have pointed this out to Bhante Sujato. Please remove the A, put the, but he has so far stubbornly adhered to his wrong ideas. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, sorry, no, I, I apologize. I, I'm sure he has a good reason for that, but I, at the moment I can't see it. <laughs> so, um, so here we have the trouble, first of all, right? The world is born, grows old, dies and passes away. Uh, how can I find an escape from this suffering, from old age and death? Uh, and uh, life has all of these uh, problems built into it but the biggest problem of life uh, and the biggest the thing that it always ends in uh, is old age and death uh, this always ends with death and this is inherently problematic because even though you may there is a degree of enjoyment in life yeah we enjoy our relationships we enjoy our belongings we enjoy seeing things in the world experiencing all of these kind of things uh, every time we enjoy things uh, every time we uh, do that, we attach to things in that world. We hold on to these things because they are precisely because these are the things we enjoy, that is precisely why we attach to them. We want more of those things. And that attachment is never going to be sustainable. And that is the problem, right? That is why death and old age is always the problem. Every life must end in death. And every attachment is going to be challenged that you ever have. And this is kind of the problem. This is why re-death, endless re-death, always going on and on and on. Every time your attachment in shallow, every time dying is going to be difficult for you. As it says in the suttas, dying with attachment is painful. And so because of that, you know, they can see why this whole round is so problematic. And that is only the beginning. That is only the kind of the superficial understanding of suffering. Yeah, that death is, uh, must always be problematic. Yeah. Uh, there is deeper truth to this as well. The whole cycle of rebirth and what it means in terms of where you can be reborn and all of these kind of things. Uh, but just the idea of just continuously dying again and again and again, always having to give up everything you have worked so hard for. Uh, the vast majority of people, they work really hard for their, whatever they have gained in this life, their relationships, all their belongings, their status in society. Uh, all of these things, everything that matters to you, to the average person, uh, has to go. Uh, 
And so once you start to see this, you start to understand. You have to make yourself somewhat independent of these things. Uh, and that independence, of course, is very much what the spiritual path is about. Uh, is building up a sense inside of you that actually these things, are, okay, they may still matter to you, but they don't matter as much uh, because you have an alternative center to your life uh, that your life revolves around, uh, which you find a degree of stability. And that is what will then help you in the long run as you move forward. Uh, so... This is why old age and death is like the summary for, of suffering here, because it is a very clear point of suffering here, and it kind of draws together so much of the suffering in life, uh, and is kind of singled out in this way here. So, <clears throat> and then of course comes the, uh, the Buddha, this is what makes the Buddha to Buddha. He then asks, well, what might be the solution to old age and death, uh, to all this suffering? Uh, and then the Buddha comes up with the idea, well, birth uh, is the problem, or rebirth is the problem. Rebirth is the cause for old age and death. Uh, and um, I always like to point out that, you know, for us, we are all Buddhists and we think, yeah, yeah, okay, birth, of course, birth is the cause for all the death. Yawn, okay, next, next thing, please. Uh, we, we know this already, but we don't really know it. And this is kind of the point. We think we know it. We think it is obvious. But actually, if you go out into the street in Melbourne, I, 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 please try this tomorrow whenever you have ready and, and stop and then stop random people on the street. Yeah, okay, be careful when you do that so you don't get into tr trouble. And ask them, what is the cause of old age and death? Uh, and see what they say. How many people will say rebirth or birth? Uh, I, I guarantee you almost zero unless they happen to be a Buddhist, right? It's just really unlikely everyone will ever say that this is actually quite radical when people say rebirth is the cause for old age and death. Uh, people might say, yeah, yeah, cancer, okay, go on, okay, heart attack, yeah, car accidents, uh, yeah. And in one way, they are the causes for death, but they're not the root cause, they're not the root problem. You can never get rid of all cancers. So it doesn't really solve anything if you say cancer. Yeah, it's, it's always going to come back. And so, but the only really thing that's going to solve this is rebirth. And so the Buddha kind of goes deeper, and this is kind of what makes the Buddha the Buddha. He kind of looks at things in an entirely new way, and he goes deep into the problem, and he comes up with a solution no one has ever thought of before. It is bleeding obvious when you think about it, but because, because birth doesn't seem to have a solution in its own right, what's the point of saying birth, right? It doesn't, that doesn't really do anything, but the Buddha looks at things in a different way. And this is what makes the Buddha such an extraordinarily interesting person and so audacious in the way he thinks. He doesn't think like other people. He has an imagination that goes beyond the ordinary. They say that imagination is the most important thing in intelligence. I think even Albert Einstein said that. Albert Einstein, you know, considered super duper intelligent. He said imagination is the most important factor in intelligence. And this is what makes the Buddha like super duper intelligent in this way, right there. He thinks differently. Rebirth is the cause of all age and death. Once you hear it, you can't help but agree. But just coming up with this is kind of extraordinary. Anyway. I don't want to spend too much time on this. We are coming to the very end of this uh, little retreat of ours. So anyway, so then it occurred to me, when what exists is there rebirth? And the answer is when there is existence, or continued existence, bhava, there is rebirth. What does that mean? Well, it means that uh, when you 
it can mean a number of different things. Uh, one of them is like if you uh, exist uh, and together with craving, and uh, that, that very fact that you have an existence together with craving means that you carry on into a new life. The way this is sometimes explained is that existence uh, means, existence doesn't mean just the fact that you exist, but how you exist. Uh, uh, and so this means that you exist in a certain way here. Yeah, so as a human being, you exist in a way where you are attached to the sensory realm or you're attached to uh, maybe meditation or whatever it might be. So you exist in that way. You're making kamma in that way. And so that kamma together with existence drives the rebirth in the future. Uh, uh, the commentaries make this distinction between kamma bhava and upapatti bhava, which means like uh, uh, kamma existence and uh, rebirth existence. Uh, and that seems to be how the suttas talk about this. You exist in a particular way here. Uh, and how do you, what is your particular way of existing here? Uh, and your particular way of existing is roughly what goes on in your mind when you sit long hours of meditation and look, look inside uh, and see what's happening. Uh, that gives an idea of your kind of existence. Uh, what, what is your mind preoccupied with? Uh, what other things do you think about? Uh, do you just find peace in your mind? If you just find peace in your mind when you meditate, that means that you are leaning towards peace. That's a very good sign. Uh, if you think a lot about the world, but it means that you're still stuck in the sensuality, in the sensory existence, right? Uh, this gives an idea where your mind exists, uh, and that will then give you an idea also where you're going to get reborn as a consequence. Uh, what is it that drives that existence? What is the cause for existence? Grasping yeah, yeah, or taking up. These are the things that we take up in this world. Like we take up living in a house, we take up an education, we take up Buddhism, we take up relationships, we take up hobbies, we do all of these things, all of the things that we take up. Yeah, taking up both literally and metaphorically, but mostly metaphorically, we take all these things up. We become that sort of person because we have these, this is what our life revolves around. And once your life revolves around something, that is the person you become. The bhava arises out of that. Why do we keep on picking up things in the world? Why do we take all of these things up? Because we crave. And craving demands of us that we do things to satisfy that craving. So why did you come on this retreat? Because you craved. <laughs> why did I come here? Probably because I craved too. I, you know, <laughs> we're all coming here because of some kind of craving and desire. And then we pick up these things. We pick up retreats. We pick up various things, Buddhist practices. And so we come here. Why do we crave? Because we feel. Feeling is the kind of foundational thing on this Buddhist path. It's what drives everything else. That's what makes us crave, makes us act in the world and do things. Without feeling, there wouldn't be anything. So in many ways, feeling is a kind of pivotal thing on the Buddhist path that makes every, drives everything else. And feelings can be of various types, but in some ways the most important feelings are the feelings in the, in the five-sense realm and the feelings that relate to uh, the sense of self. Uh, yeah? The sense of self wants to feel good. Uh, it wants to be flattered. Uh, it wants to be happy. Uh, it wants to hang out with good people, etc., etc. So the sense of self is also a very important part here and how it reacts to the world, uh, how we feel about things. Uh. And uh, those feelings in turn uh, are conditioned by contact or you can maybe call it experience, uh, passa. We experience the world, yeah, and we experience that world through the six sense fields, the six senses, and the objects of the six senses. And those six sense fields, in turn, they arise from name and form. And nama, 
Rupa and uh, Nama Rupa is uh, really that is just the um, uh, it is just the, the uh, kind of the basically the mind not the mind the, the personality in a sense that's what Nama Rupa is uh, it can be considered the personality here yeah. yeah it's kind of a nice way of thinking about it it's not the consciousness but the personal aspects of things. Uh, and uh, so why is it called Nama Rupa? Because many of the kind of most important things that we do, Rupa is the form, Nama is, that, uh, is the naming of things, Nama is the same word as name in English, that's why it's called Nama, it's translated as name. And naming in the world is basically very close to the idea of recognizing things. Yeah? So recognition, naming, perception, and uh, and. Uh, uh, all the kind of mental factors that revolve around that. Uh, uh, it is defined in the sutta as nama as all the kind of various mental factors, but not consciousness. Uh, but then because naming is the th- is kind of a core aspect of this, uh, and uh, this also um, revolves a little bit around the ideas that existed prior to Buddhism. Uh, and so the Buddha is probably using some of this terminology deliberately to uh, re emphasize to kind of make a Buddhist answer to the ancient Brahmanical teachings. Uh, and so he uses name and the way that was used in those Brahmanical teachings and then puts them into the Buddhist teachings to kind of to, uh, to uh, make a Buddhist alternative uh, to those Brahmanical teachings using similar kind of terminology. Uh. So, uh, but it's a little bit cryptic, name and form, but uh, it, essentially it means the personality. And that personality is then in turn conditioned by consciousness. Uh, yeah, the personality is a particular kind of, uh, uh, is particular kind of mental factors coming together in a certain way. That is your personality. And that way the mental factors come together will depend on where you are reborn, what kind of being you are. Uh, your past conditioning, all of these kind of things. Uh, and all of that is then conditioned by consciousness. It's consciousness that makes personality uh, possible. People can only exist because uh, consciousness is the driving force behind that person in a sense. Uh, so whenever there is consciousness, uh, there's also going to be personality. Uh, there's also going to be a person, a particular kind of person. Uh, here I mean personality almost in the literal sense. Uh, and uh, behind that consciousness again is more personality. Yeah? The personality from the past gives rise to consciousness, consciousness gives rise to personality. So whenever there is this, there is individuation uh, uh, in the world. And uh, so you have consciousness and uh, uh, nama, rupa, name and form kind of revolving around each other, uh, yeah? going back uh, into the past. Uh, always these two things revolving around each other. Uh, and uh, that's why it says here, uh, towards the end here, it says that um, then through proper attention I comprehended with wisdom uh, when consciousness exists, there are name and form. Consciousness is the condition for name and form. Uh, then it occurred to me when what exists is the consciousness. Uh, what is the condition for consciousness? Uh, then through proper attention I comprehended with wisdom uh, when name and form exist, uh, there is consciousness. Uh, name and form are the conditions for consciousness. Uh, so it's like a mutual conditioning. Uh, name and form, condition for consciousness. Consciousness, condition for name and form. Uh, so that's like a catch-22. How are you going to get out of this? Uh, if one thing conditions the other, it seems like it's impossible to get out. Uh, and this is exactly kind of the point that is really hard to get out. Uh. 
Uh, the Buddha then says, then it occurred to me, this consciousness turns back from name and form. It doesn't go beyond that. Uh, this is the extent to which one may be reborn, grow old, die, pass away, and reappear. That is, name and form are the conditions for consciousness. Uh, consciousness is a condition for name and form. So uh, this is kind of the root of uh, the problem, yeah? this kind of mutual conditionality between consciousness and name and form. Uh, and this is, in many ways, the Buddha's contribution to the philosophy of the world. Uh, uh, because prior to the Buddha and basically all other philosophies and ideas in the world, uh, consciousness of mind is somehow said to be able to separate from the rest of the personality. Uh, yeah, the idea in most religions or teaching is that the mind can go on after death. This was the idea in the Brahmanism. The Atta, the Atta, the self, is like the mind. And then that mind and Brahma is one after you die. Similar to what you find in the theistic religions about the mind or the soul or whatever, kind of you know, going to God or, what, or whatever it might be. But in Buddhism it says that's impossible because the consciousness depends on the personality factors. You cannot kind of, you cannot destroy the personality without destroying consciousness. So personality is always there. This is kind of name and form idea. So personality and consciousness must go together in this way. And that means that if you are going to come out of this whole thing, you have to end both consciousness and personality at the same time. They both have to go. And that is kind of the Buddha's insight into the world, which differentiates Buddhism from everything else. And this is why when you come to Nibbana, everything comes to an end. Everything has to cease, because all of these things depend on each other. None of them have independent existence. If what I'm saying makes no sense to you, whatever, don't worry about it. Because it is not really all that important. It is just that it's interesting to contemplate some of the deeper aspects of dependent origination. Just, kind of, just to kind of really befuddle you all towards the very end of this retreat so that you go really confused back. <laughs> so no, that, that is not the purpose. But I just wanted to, because it was there, I thought I might as well have a quick look at it. I'm going to draw it all together in a couple of minutes so we can kind of make sense of make sense of this. So, <clears throat> um, name and form are the conditions for the sixth sense field. The sixth sense fields are the conditions for contact. That is how, and etc. etc. All the way up to uh, death and old age. That is how how this entire mass of suffering originates. Uh, Origination, origination. Such was the vision, the knowledge, the wisdom, the realization, and the light that arose in me regarding teachings not learned before from another. So uh, the idea here is this is the original insight into the Buddha. He hasn't received this from any other teacher. He has seen, penetrated something very profound, uh, dependent origination, how there comes to be suffering, old age and death. Then it occurred to me, when what does not exist is there no old age and death? When what ceases, do old age and death cease? Through proper attention I comprehend it with wisdom. When rebirth doesn't exist, there is no old age and death. When rebirth ceases, old age and death cease. So, uh, 
Yeah, so this is kind of the reverse of the other one. Yeah, the cessation sequence. How to make this whole all of these problems cease? I should also point out here the Buddha's use of proper attention. This is yoniso manasikara. Yeah, one of these fundamental factors on the path, knowing how to attend to things in the right way. And it's only then that you comprehend with wisdom when you do use yoniso manasikara. This is how you see these things. So when rebirth comes to an end. Old age and death come to an end. Then it occurred to me, when what does not exist, is there no rebirth? Well, when existence, the creation of kamma, when the kind of the feeling that you exist in a certain way, when you don't really exist internally anymore, you don't have a sense of self, uh, which is what the arahant is all about. When you don't have that sense of self, you don't exist in any ordinary sense. And... Uh, because that sense of self is gone, there is no rebirth because you're no longer projecting yourself into the future, you're no longer interested in the future. You don't want to carry on anywhere, and so you don't carry on. Grasping, you're no longer grasping anything. That grasping is the cause when the grasping ceases, continued existence ceases. You're not holding on to anything, including the sense of self or anything else in the world. You're not craving because you're not craving, you're not grasping. You don't desire anything in the world. You don't make you not pick anything up because you're not interested in picking anything up because you have no desire that needs to be satisfied. And so you don't do that. Feeling has come to an end. When feeling ceases, craving ceases. Obviously, if you don't feel, you can't really crave. And if you contact or experience ceases, then there is no feeling. When there is no experience, when there is no six sense fields, there can be no contact or experience, because all experience happens through the six sense fields. And when there is no name and form, when there is no personality or person, then there is no six sense fields, because that happens through the person. And when what ceases, do name and form cease? And through proper attention, I comprehend it with wisdom. When consciousness doesn't exist, there is no name and form. Because when there is no consciousness, when that ceases, name and form cease. Yeah, consciousness is at the foundation, the root of all of this. So... Then he says, then it occurred to me, when what does not exist, is there no consciousness? When uh, what ceases, does consciousness cease? Then through proper attention, I comprehend it with wisdom. Uh, when name and form does not exist, uh, there is no consciousness. Uh, when there's no name and form, consciousness ceases. So um, again, yeah, so this kind of points to the very root of the problem here. Uh, sometimes dependent origination is taught in a different way. Uh, and it is taught, instead of saying that name and form is the condition for consciousness, it says sankharas is the cause for consciousness. And then it goes one step back and it says the cause for sankhara, in other words, the willed activities, yeah, the, uh, the volitional activities or choices, the cause for that is ignorance. Yeah, it is because we don't see the world rightly. That is why we make all of these choices. And that is what establishes our consciousness in the future and make this whole round come out. And that, of course, points to the solution. The solution is right there because ignorance or delusion is something we can overcome. In fact, the whole purpose of coming on a retreat like this is to start, or not start, maybe carry on with that process of overcoming delusion. 
Yeah, seeing the teachings more clearly, clarifying our perceptions of the world, making them more attuned to how the Buddha taught and all of these kind of things. So we are reducing delusion right here on a retreat like this. When your mind feels more clear, less confused, you're already on the right track. This is a gradual reduction of avidja, gradual reduction of delusion. And the whole purpose of the Noble Eightfold Path is precisely to get rid of delusion, right? This is the whole point of uh, deep samadhi, is because deep samadhi makes you see things according to reality. And seeing things in accordance with reality is the opposite of delusion. So now the outline of the solution becomes obvious. Yeah, it may seem like a trap, this dependent origination. How can you come out of this mutual conditionality of name and form and consciousness? Well, this is how you get out of that. Uh, you are kind of changing the, the ball game. You are changing things by uh, understanding that process itself. And by understanding that very process, uh, the process comes to a stop. Uh, this is the weird thing here. Uh, this is what insight is all about. Uh, yeah, seeing the process for what it is, uh, an impermanent uh, a structure of reality, always changing, always moving around. Uh, and actually, it is very simple. Uh, it seems so complicated when you explain these things. And when you hear the Buddha explanation, it feels, wow, I can never understand this. Uh, but of course you can, uh, because it's just an insight. It's intuitive. Actually, it's very straightforward when you see it. Uh, it's just when it comes out in words that it sounds very complicated. Uh, Remember, the Buddha saw this in a flash of a moment. Yeah, it's just one insight, bang. And all of these things, the 5,000 pages of the Sutta Pitaka, are the consequence of that tiny insight. Isn't that extraordinary? Because it is so hard to put into words. So you get all of those things as a consequence of something very simple and profound happening at that time. So this is what we have to do. Just practice the Noble Eightfold Path. But before I come back to that, uh, let's just finish off this, uh, the very last part of the sutta, because this is really why I included the sutta, because the last part here. Huh? Then it occurred to me, I have discovered the path to awakening. Uh, that is, when name and form cease, consciousness ceases. Uh, when consciousness ceases, name and form cease. Uh, when name and form cease, the sixth sense field cease. Uh, when the sixth sense field cease, Contact ceases. When contact ceases, feeling ceases. When feeling ceases, craving ceases. When craving ceases, taking up ceases. When taking up ceases, existence ceases. When existence ceases, rebirth ceases. When rebirth ceases, uh, old age and death ceases. And that is how, how this entire mass of suffering ceases. Cessation, cessation. Such was the vision, the knowledge, the wisdom, the realization and the light that arose in me regarding teachings not learned before from another. And now comes a simile. And this is the name, the sutta is named after this very simile at the very end here. Suppose a person was walking through a forest They'd see an ancient path, an ancient route, traveled by humans in the past. Following it along, they would see an ancient city, an ancient capital inhabited by humans in the past. It was lovely, complete with parks, groves, lotus ponds and embankments. Then that person would inform a king or the minister, please, sir, you should know this, while walking through the forest, I saw an ancient path, an ancient route, traveled by humans in the past. 
Following it along, I saw an ancient city, an ancient capital inhabited by humans in the past. Uh, it was lovely, complete with parks, groves, lotus ponds and embankments. Uh, sir, you should rebuild that city. Then that king or the minister would have that city rebuilt. Uh, and after some time, that city was successful, prosperous and full of people, uh, attained to growth and expansion. Uh, in the same way, I saw an ancient path, an ancient route traveled by fully awakened Buddhas in the past. And what is that ancient path? The ancient drove traveled by fully awakened Buddhas in the past. It is simply this noble and full path. <coughs> that is right view, right aim, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness and right stillness. <coughs> this is that ancient path, uh, the ancient road traveled by fully awakened ones in the past. Uh, let's just stop there for a second. <coughs> so, this is the idea of uh, someone happening upon a path in the forest yeah and the path here that the buddha first of all is come happening upon seems to be the dependent origination because he calls he calls this the path to awakening just before and then he um, uh, clears it up and he creates the noble eightfold path kind of out of that so you can imagine this person walking through a forest, yeah, and the forest very often in the suttas uh, is a simile for the world of the five senses, or it can be the world of self-view as well, uh, this jungle of the five senses, the jungle of the sense of self. Uh, and as you wander through this jungle, uh, you cannot really see very far ahead or very far away. Uh, you have no bird's eye view, you have no oversight, you don't really know what is going on. Uh, you're fumbling through this forest, uh, and then you happen upon a path, uh, yeah, and this is kind of a beautiful thing when you happen on the path, and you follow this path uh, through the jungle. Uh, and of course, as you do that, uh, the path happens to lead somewhere. Uh, you realize this is a path used by humans in the past, uh, and it leads somewhere. It leads to this ancient city, this ancient capital inhabited by humans in the past. Uh, and you can imagine this would actually have happened in India at that time, uh, because there were ancient civilizations also in India, and one of those ancient civilizations was the Indus civilization, and this may possibly be a reference to that, yeah, because these civilizations were already there, and so probably people did walk through the jungle and find these kind of ancient civilizations. And it's like a discovery, right? It's like something really exciting. You're walking through the jungle, you're finding something extraordinary here. And this is kind of what is so, it's really exciting to be an explorer uh, yeah, and discovering these ancient things. Uh. And then, uh, so this is the idea then of uh, what you discover, of course, is Nibbana. You walk along this path. Uh, and as you walk along this path, you discover all the factors of that path. Uh, all the beautiful happinesses and the joys of that path ending in Nibbana itself, this magnificent capital somewhere far in the jungle. Uh. And this, this is kind of what our spiritual life is about. Uh, it's this extraordinary voyage or travel of discovery. Uh, discovering things that we have never experienced before in our entire life. Uh, 
starting off with some simple things, simple yet profound things. Uh, the excitement of seeing things in a new way, uh, the excitement of developing compassion and kindness for the world, uh, the excitement of experiencing joys and happiness that you have never seen before, uh, stillnesses where you sit in meditation like a rock, immobile, immovable. Uh, you never knew it was possible to experience such contentment and stillness at all. Uh, and then they enter into the jhana stage, stage by stage, discovering new things. It's an extraordinarily interesting journey. One thing is the discovery in the ancient world, discovering ancient cities. That's a small thing. But discovering and understanding the potential of your own mind, the potential of moving onwards, away from suffering, towards real happiness. This is the most interesting, the most exciting discovery that any human being can do. And it is open for everyone, because it is an inward journey. It doesn't impinge on anyone else in the world. It doesn't lead to any conflict or problems or anything like that. It's only your own exciting discovery within her. This is what this path promises uh, if you live it fully uh, and you really practice these teachings properly. Uh. So, of course, when you get to that city, yeah, it is lovely, complete with parks, groves, lotus ponds and embankments. Uh. Yeah, these are all the aspects of awakening of Nibbana, yeah, the, uh, the deep stages of Samadhi, the various uh, stages of awakening, the various uh, maybe powers that you can achieve. Yeah, it is all these all this beautiful and marvelous things when you come to the end of that path. Uh, and then you uh, clear that path. This is what the Buddha does. He clears that path, this ancient route traveled by other people. And then he... Um, uh, they rebuild that city. Yeah? And the rebuilding of the city is kind of the idea of making it available for others. Uh, you make the path available and then you teach this path to other people and other people follow that path. Uh, and of course the miracle happens when you teach that path to other people. They too have the same results. Uh, and not long afterwards it becomes prosperous and full of people, uh, uh, that city uh, and uh, this, of course, is the idea of the Dhamma growing in the world. And many people attaining the same kind of things, uh, attain to growth and expansion in the world. Uh, and this is the success of the Dhamma, the power of the Dhamma Chakka Pavatana, setting in motion the wheel of the Dhamma, setting it rolling in the world. It cannot be stopped by anyone. Why? Because it is inherent so compelling in this path uh, that it just goes on by itself from generation to generation, from society to society, from, from uh, millennia to millennia, etc., etc. Uh. And so this is what happens in Buddhism. Uh, gradually, with this beautiful simile of the ancient path in the, for in the forest. Uh. And then the Buddha says that following along that path are directly new old and old age and death. Uh, the origin, the cessation, the practice that lead to the cessation. Uh. Following it along a directly new rebirth, a directly new continued existence, a directly new grasping, a directly new craving, a directly new feeling, a directly new contact or experience, a directly new the six sense fields, a directly new name and form, a directly new consciousness. Following it along a directly new choices, the origin, the cessation, the practice that leads to the cessation. So here it is also adding in choices, yeah? so which I was just mentioning, sankharas. Uh, and once you add to the choices, uh, then you're also kind of implying avidja or ignorance uh, or the uh, uh, delusion there at the very beginning here. Yeah? 
Having directly known this, uh, I told the monks, the nuns, the laymen, and the laywomen, uh, and that is how the spiritual life has become successful and prosperous, uh, extensive, popular, widespread, and well-proclaimed, wherever there are gods and humans. So, there you are. That is the uh, uh, city or the... uh, uh, the city sutta uh, from the uh, uh, Nidana Sangyutta, uh, the sutta on uh, the, the uh, a dependent origination. Uh, and that is the last sutta for this retreat. Just to, uh, I find it quite inspiring and beautiful, this particular uh, simile. Uh, and it kind of it, uh, makes uh, the whole uh, idea of the spiritual life sound like an exciting journey of discovery. Uh, and I think that is exactly what it is. Uh, it is this extraordinary thing uh, which kind of leads to the finding of gold. Yeah, it's kind of the gold refining is what the uh, finding the real mind really is about. And this is the simile used in the suttas. Uh, it's the idea of the diamond, the diamond at the core of all of this, uh, and all of these things. That is so uh, uh, very powerful similes uh, and of course the reality is that none of these similes really measure up to what we are really trying to discover because it just goes way way beyond that uh, but it all starts in a very simple way uh, and the path is always very very simple and easy uh, and the most hardest thing is in the buddhist teaching is to sustain the practice uh, and do it consistently uh, and uh, this is what i have found in my life to be the most difficult thing and this is what most people find the most difficult in their life uh, and often we do many detours, we go in the wrong way for some time, uh, and then gradually we gain the motivation to keep going with this. Uh. So the very simple thing that all of you really need to do uh, to sustain this practice, uh, the one thing that you need to remember all the time, uh, and the one word that really summarizes this entire retreat, uh, there's only one word. Uh, and those of you who have been on my trips before know exactly what that word is, and you don't have get it. You you, you have no say because <laughs> you know what it is. But there's only one word that matters. One thing that you should always remember. And if you can remember this one thing, yeah, yeah, day in day out, week in week out, year in year out. Hopefully not life in life out, but sometimes life in life out. <laughs> Yeah, one thing, the one thing that is the foundation of everything else, the one thing that makes the spiritual path work, the one thing that makes meditation work. There's only one thing here. Do you want to hear this one thing? (laughs) And it's so simple, right? And it comes back to this one very simple idea, and that is kindness. And if you can live a life of kindness, thoroughly in everything you do, uh, in your actions, uh, in your speech, in the way you think, uh, in the way you deal with everything in the world, uh, that is where this path really is going to come together. Uh, Of course, uh, that kindness does not exist in a vacuum. Uh, That kindness exists because of right view, it exists because you're motivated to do it. Uh, And so the question is always, I always ask people, are you able to remember that one thing? Uh, And people nod, yeah, sure, I can remember. Of course you can't remember that one thing, it's impossible. Uh, In the busyness of ordinary life, uh, when you do things, everyone sometimes forgets these things. Uh, It's actually quite difficult to always be motivated to be kind. Uh, And so the way to do that is to always come back to these teachings. uh, Always come back to the suttas, to read the Buddha's word, uh, to come back to talks that talk about these teachings in a way that actually is, uh, uh, that 
reflects these teachings in the proper way. Yeah? You have a, don't have too many teachers in your life. You have too many teachers that are going to get very confused. Uh, after a while, you know there are certain teachers that actually you trust. Uh, these are the teachers that are able to motivate you in the right way. And you feel that they teach in accordance with the suttas. Uh, it's okay to have a few teachers, but don't make it too many teachers, uh, because otherwise you just get confused. You don't know up from down after a while. Uh, so come back to these teachings uh, and allow them to gently brainwash you in the right direction. Uh, that is what this really is about. Uh, every time you feel you need a bit of motivation, uh, every time you feel that you lose sight and you forget about kindness a little bit too often, uh, come back, uh, listen to the teachings, uh, motivate yourself, uh, get yourself heading in the right direction again. Uh, and then that is the way you actually keep on remembering these things. Uh, what you are really doing is you're re-establishing right view within yourself. Uh, what really is important in life? Uh, getting your priorities correct, getting motivated to do the right things. Uh, then you're going to be on the right track. Uh, even then, uh, it is, uh, <laughs> even then it's not always uh, plain sailing, as they say. But that is really the only way to make this work. Uh. And this is one of those things that you see in the suttas again and again. The suttas always talk about the foundation for all the practice on the Buddhist path. Uh. And the foundation for all the Buddhist practice path is always the Kalyanamitta. Uh. Yeah, the meeting with uh, superior people, the Sapurisa. Sapurisa Sangseva, which means association with superior people. When you are with those superior people, you get to hear the Dhamma. And this idea of hanging out with superior people, especially the Buddha, and then hearing the Dhamma as a consequence, this is the foundation for everything. It leads stage by stage all the way to awakening itself. And this is what you have to do. So, that is it. <laughs> And uh, I uh, wish you all the very best for your practice uh, and I hope you have lots of success and lots of happiness and joy and that you, uh, everything goes well. Uh, and if you, it doesn't, and if, and if <laughs> no, I'm not going to say anything. I, it is going to be very successful as long as you keep on investigating, as long as you keep on heading in the right way, then uh, guaranteed you will have lots of success on this path. Uh, so that is it for now. Um, uh, should we, let's maybe, should we do the Arhang Samasambuddha first of all? Is that a nice thing? Let's do that first of all. Then we can do a few more announcements or whatever uh, towards the very end. So let's do the uh, homage of the Triple Gem first. Arhang Samasambuddha Bhagava Udhang Bhagavantang Abhivadhemi Bhakatu Bhagavata Dhammo Dhammang Namasami Supatipanno Bhagavato Savakasango Sanghang Nama